Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today, three stories that all converge around China. We'll hear about a Chinese businessman who's bankrolling a canal project that could be an economic driver or an environmental disaster for Nicaragua. We'll also talk with an Iranian businessman who's working to bring China fully into the global economy. But first, two weeks ago, China announced a change to its one-child policy, which has been in effect since 1979. Our producer, Tucker Ives, was actually in Beijing when the news was announced. Because of tight media control, he actually found out about it through an app on his phone long before the official state news agency told the rest of the country. For the following week, Tucker heard jokes told to young couples about their new freedom to have two kids. One man he met had just gotten married the week before. But aside from the personal impact on millions upon millions of Chinese families, what does this change mean for the country and for the rest of the world? Joining us in studio are Xiangming Chen, who's Dean and Director of the Center for Urban and Global Studies at Trinity College, and Ren Yuan, who's Professor of Demography and Urban Studies at Fudan University in China. He's visiting Trinity this week. I'd like to welcome you both to where we live. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah. I'll ask you first, sir, what led China to decide to reverse its one-child policy? Because the one-child policy is out of date now. After 30 years of population control, the population development environment is changing. The related issues like aging and extremely low fertility will lead to some more serious problems. So it is time and very urgently to abolish the old one-child policy. When you say it will lead to some serious consequences, obviously the fact that the that the population is so rapidly aging is very serious. Mm-hmm. The fact that there is a, a gender imbalance in the country mm-hmm. seems to be a serious problem. What are some other things that you see as the major problems caused by this now long-standing policy? So the family uh, size is shrinking and could not support uh, long-term domestic uh, consumption. Because of long-term fertility, the proportion of labor uh, were decreasing, and actually it already decreased uh, from 2011. And it were decreasing in the long run uh, more fast because of long-term fertility decline. And the labor decline will decrease the potential economic growth driving forces. So those are uh, all serious uh, problems caused by long-term low fertility. Yeah, I would uh, strongly uh, second the uh, last point Professor Jen made, which is the uh, potential economic negative economic effect of a shrinking uh, labor force. It's a long-delayed consequences if a smaller cohort over time entering the labor force. If that happens, that will further slow down, which is already a slowing economic growth in China that potentially could cause social, political instability issues that would be of great concern to the Chinese government. It's important to uh, clarify uh, a slightly uh, technical point. 
the numbers Professor referred to, referring to the total fertility rate in China right now is at one point five, roughly. And I think the United States, for example, by comparison, is about one point eight. But the official replacement level fertility is two point one. In other words, in general, it takes two point one children. For the population to reproduce itself, so China has been below that replacement level, primarily as a result of one-child policy for a long time, and, and substantially below. Substantially. It. I would assume, though, that demographers probably could have seen this coming some decades ago. Why did it take so long, in your mind, for this policy to be reversed? The concern for a overpopulation, with the challenge of supporting. Uh, the largest population in the world at a relatively low economic level trumped all other concerns, and、uh, I think that kind of concern, that kind of thinking,、uh, was very uh, sticky, uh, very persistent, and for a long time, and that heavily influenced the policy making, originating from that concern and affecting other issues that were at that time probably were not given sufficient thought to. People always think a smaller smaller population will be beneficial for economic growth, but actually they do not know the full meaning of population economics relations. Do you think that this change in policy will change anything about the migration patterns that we've seen over time from people in the in the countryside of China into these major major cities? What trends do you see happening in the next twenty years as the population now, perhaps, starts to change with more people having more babies? The mi- migration pattern might change, but、uh, I do not think the migration pattern will change because of population policy, the fertility policy changes. But do it is true migration patterns might change. It is changing because of industrial structures changes in China, but not、uh, by. Fertility policy. The reason I ask about that, though, it, it does change because of industrial structures. And if if part of the problem, doctor, is that right now China doesn't have the workforce, the young workforce, to keep up. I guess I'm wondering if there's anything about the way that Chinese industry grows, about the way Chinese cities grow, will be at all altered by this policy shift. Maybe we don't see it in ten years, but maybe we see it in twenty or thirty. I think there was some kind of、uh, indirect connections between. Uh, the earlier waves of rural to urban migration and fertility rate. I would say China is really kind of at a crossroads. It's facing、uh, some tough choices of how to upgrade the industrial production to gradually move away from labor-intensive manufacturing, which demands a lot of labor, which potentially could、uh, not be there、uh, if this、uh, smaller cohorts continue to move through their demographic cycles. So、uh, I think you can see variety of policies that have been introduced to help draw more educated,、uh, some return from overseas, and the expansion of higher education systems to produce more a greater amount of human capital, if you will. So that gradually to reduce the demand for manual labor at the lower levels. Your colleague mentioned people who who have had children. More than one over time, and by some estimates, we saw a census report from 2010 that maybe 13 million people live in China without official documentation because they were second or third children of a family. Do you know, Doctor, what happens to these people under this new policy? People who were born prior to this, 
but are living undocumented because their families exceeded the one-child policy. Undocumented、uh, new babies will will be documented based on the census. The every ten years of census will document those undocumented babies into the database system. An earlier、uh, reading of、uh, some of the literature, in a much more limited way, was that as these children be redocumented, if you will, or be officially counted into the system, and then the follow-up step is to gradually、uh, restore or provide the kind of government services and programs that、uh, everybody else. Is entitled to, but there may be a delayed process. It may not be done properly.、Uh, so this is something that I don't have the very specific evidence on. But I think over time, those、uh, so-called violations in the one-child policy were redressed or、uh, in a delayed fashion,、uh, and hopefully these children who were born in in those years. As they have already grown up, and、uh, some of them have been going through the education system and the labor market system, you know, would have hopefully would have、uh, received what they were overdue to them. A last question for you, Dr. Chen. We read that back in 1985, you wrote about the effect of the one-child policy on the organization of families.、Uh, in this report, you wrote more nuclear families will tend to reinforce the rising consumption orientation and individualistic materialism. In in reading that, it sounds like Well, you were right. It sounds as though what what you predicted back in 1985,、uh, only about six years into that policy, seems to have come true. Is that how you read that? Yes, I'm very happy to hear that <laughs>、uh, you, you you agree with that, and、uh, the larger trend seems to have been borne out over the last 20, 25 years, particularly in、um, megacities,、uh, booming cities, prosperous cities in the coast areas such as Shanghai, where Professor Zhen、uh, works and and teaches. So the smaller family, the one-child-centered way of rearing、uh, this generation,、uh, is really manifested itself in greater resources devoted to them for their education, you know, for their、uh, hobbies, developing their hobbies. You know, the one-child generation parents. Now,、uh, spending the entire weekends, many of them、uh, taking them to piano lessons, to all kinds of、uh, extracurricular activities, in order to really develop earlier, nurture them, so that they can become、uh, more competitive in schools and do better in schools, and 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 so on. And I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit about the impact you believe that. This policy has had on just the social structure of China, of how families operate, and and how China works as a country now after all of these years of people just having one child. In in the early stage of low fertility, it might have some positive impacts to children's life and to the economic growth because of the decreasing of. The proportion of children will increase the proportion of laborers, then it will provide some kind of demographic dividend. But if this kind of trend keeps too long, in a long-term low fertility, will keep the proportion of children decreasing, then pushing the proportion of labor decreasing too. Then those kind of positive impacts will transfer to negative impacts to economic. I want to thank you both for talking with me. Thank you so much. It was very interesting, and, and thank you for coming to Hartford and joining us. Nice. You're to welcome.、Hear.
Coming up, a canal project that could be an economic driver or an environmental disaster for Nicaragua. It has its roots in the Chinese need to cheaply ship goods around the world. It's coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Right now, we turn to Nicaragua, where Chinese development company HKND is looking to construct a massive transoceanic shipping canal. The project is seen to hold economic promise for the Central American country, but it could also contain environmental and social perils. Here to tell us more about this is Catherine Hoyt. She's a national co-coordinator of the Alliance for Global Justice and its Nicaragua Network Program. She was in Connecticut recently for the Nicaragua Canal Debate, Development, Environment, Rights, a program hosted by Trinity College and the Hartford Ocotal Sister City Project. Catherine Hoyt, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for asking me. Could you first just explain what the Nicaragua Canal Project is? Well, it's a proposed shipping canal across Nicaragua, which engineers say would be the largest engineering project in the world at this point. It's a dream that Nicaraguans have had for many centuries. I have a trivial pursuit question of when was the first feasibility study <laughs> order for a canal in Nicaragua. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't even imagine. When was that? Uh, it was 1567. My goodness. King Philip II of Spain ordered a study. Wow. And the engineer that he sent didn't think it could be done. But through the centuries, as you know, the Panama Canal might have been in Nicaragua. Also in the uh, 90s, there was another proposal. This, however, would be a massive canal that would carry the post-Panamax 25,000 container ships through the canal from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Or so essentially, these, these are ships that are too big for the Panama Canal to right. now actually accommodate. Right. Even the expanded Panama Canal could not accommodate them. So there, there are questions about its uh, economic potential, financial feasibility, and its uh, economic and social impact that we can go into because they're fairly complex. But obviously, because this has been something that's been talked about at least for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. this is something that people in, in this part of the world have at least had as a notion that, that perhaps someday a canal may cut through the country taking ships from, from uh, Pacific to Atlantic. Right. So it's a long-time dream. I think that the potential for economic development is the one that prompted President Daniel Ortega to uh, negotiate this concession with a, uh, a Chinese billionaire businessman. And he feels that the country's been growing well. The country's macroeconomic stability and poverty has been going down, all those good things. But with a growth rate of 4.5 to 5 percent a year, the economists say the Nicaraguan needs a 10% growth a year, and he feels that the canal could bring that. So in some ways, this is a Nicaraguan dream. In other ways, this is clearly a dream of, of China and uh, a billionaire businessman and, and the firm uh, HKND. Essentially, what this would mean is maybe big economic growth for Nicaragua, but certainly a big economic prosperity for China because they're opening up a shipping lane, right? Right. But at the same time, the question with the um, slowdown in Chinese growth, there's a question of, again, of the financial feasibility. Financial feasibility questions also come up with the fact that the ports that are uh, ready to receive these giant ships are mainly on the Pacific side of the United States, uh, Long Beach, etc., the ports around on the Atlantic side are not 
currently ready to receive these um, these ships. And there's also the opening of another channel of the Suez Canal, possible opening of the Arctic. The famous Northwest Passage could now be a reality. So it's not entirely certain that the financial feasibility study would come through. But I think there's no doubt that if it were to happen, it would raise Nicaragua to a more middle-class country like Panama is. Now, of course, you mentioned China and the fact that right now China's economy is having a slowdown, that a stock market seems to be in mm-hmm. trouble. And we've heard for years stories of both in China and also around the world where Chinese investments have been made, massive projects like this essentially being started and then stopped. We hear about ghost towns in, in far western parts of China, and we also hear about Latin American projects that have been started and then stopped again. So is there a fear amongst supporters of this project that China may put some money in but then just leave it before it ever gets finished? And that's a concern, and that was expressed. The um, Environmental Resources Management Company of Great Britain was hired to do the environmental and social impact studies, and they just released that. uh, They first to the Canal Commission in Nicaragua and now to the public a month ago, and that was one of the concerns. They said that the canal... If it complies with all international norms, could be a plus for Nicaragua. But it needs improvement and more studies, which the government has ordered, environmental, archaeological, salinity and sedimentation and a bunch of things like that that are going to happen. But if it does not, uh, the modifications aren't made to comply with international norms, it could be damaging to the environment. And if it were to be begun and not finished or restoration to damaged areas not completed, then it could be a serious damage to the Nicaraguan environment. So this is all that the Nicaraguan government has to take into account as these things move forward. We're talking with Catherine Hoyt, who's a national co-coordinator for the Alliance for Global Justice. She's in Connecticut as part of an event at Trinity College called the Nicaragua Canal Debate, Development, Environment, Rights, talking about a project that a lot of the press in America just hasn't been following very closely and could be one of the, the big development projects in this side of the world if indeed it is finalized, first announced in 2012. Could you take us through the timeline of this? Because it seems as though if indeed a massive engineering project of this type is going to happen from its inception in around 2012 to planned completion in 2020, my goodness, that's a fairly short time frame given the amount of work to build a canal from Atlantic to Pacific through this country. Yes, and think that it's overly optimistic and things have been slowed down already. Uh, mainly, I think, because of concern about the environment. The route has been changed. Route four of six possible routes was chosen based on environmental issues, and then that route was modified also. I think they're considering the environmental pluses and the minuses, and the pluses would be massive reforestation in parts of Nicaragua where the rainforest has been degraded by farmers and loggers. That would have to be uh, restored. I mean, Panama has kept its jungles, its rainforest, because of the canal. It needs the water, and to have water, you have to have trees. But on the negative side, there's a lot of concern about Lake Nicaragua because the canal would pass through Lake Nicaragua, a massive freshwater lake where more and more towns and cities are getting their drinking water. And it's a shallow lake, so a channel would have to be dug through the lake. And so the, some of the uh, more studies that have been ordered by the government would have to do with the digging of that channel to make sure that it could be done safely. 
And those are the concerns that many people have. That slowed down the timeline. So now there are more studies and it'll take a while longer. A lot of concerns, certainly from environmentalists and then an environmental impact study that came out not, mm-hmm. not too terribly long ago. You say it's, it's slowing things down. Does it slow it down to the point at which this canal just cannot be built because of the real serious environmental concerns, especially around Lake Nicaragua, which is, as you say, could be dredged up. It, it could cause massive problems there. Yes, and I think that the fact that the government has just decided not to grant another mining concession to the B2 Gold Mining Company of Canada based on environmental concerns indicates that they're they're seriously considering the environmental impact. And they've hired the ERM, as a reputable country, did a substantial study saying that it was too short a period to do a full study. So um, I think that we can be fairly confident that the environmental concerns are being taken into account now. Then the decision will be based on those and financial feasibility and technical feasibility. Those studies have not been made public. Obviously, we can talk as much as as we want about the environmental concerns, but uh, in this part of the world, there are some very uh, serious concerns amongst indigenous people, uh, amongst uh, residents of this area. What have been some of the the opposition raised? What are some of the problems with, with some indigenous people in this area that they have with this plan? Particularly affected would be uh, one uh, Rama indigenous community. The route was moved so that it would impact fewer people. And it's only a few families, but it is one community where the Rama language is still spoken. There are only a few thousand Rama indigenous And in this community, there may be a couple hundred people. I think they said 25 families, but that community would have to be moved. Mm -hmm. The first Rama lawyer from the Rama community has said that the Baikukuk-Taik community would disappear and lose their language. So therefore, there would be even fewer people speaking that language. So it's a a concern. And there are another 27,000 people that would have to move. They might end up in a better situation because... um, the government has a pretty good record of following through on compensating people for land that would be used for the canal. Do, do you feel like they're hearing the concerns of these people who might be displaced? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's being used by the political opposition, which is to be expected. But I think that the government has been doing some consultations. The environmental company, ERM, did consultations. People say that the consultation should have been done beforehand. But that's, you know, that's not the way these big capitalist projects are carried out, right? The free trade agreements, we don't know beforehand. The big concessions and projects, that's the way things get done in this modern world. Mm-hmm. And, and people aren't consulted beforehand. The indigenous are being consulted afterwards rather than before. And the Nicaraguan Constitution mandates consultation before, as do indigenous rights uh, laws under the United Nations. But those things are hard to do when you've got a big company wanting a concession. Yes, against the very small groups of people. I'm wondering what the U.S. role in all this is. Obviously, if the United States has, as you say, very large ports that may be able to take in container vessels like this on the West Coast, mm-hmm. uh, but not so much on the East Coast, the fact that their economic rival, China, is the one that is bankrolling this project, it could have clearly some benefits to the United States. It also could cause some problems for the United States. What's the U.S. role in all of this? Basically, unknown. I mean, the outgoing ambassador, Phyllis Powers, the outgoing ambassador of the U.S. to Nicaragua said, oh, that the United States was perfectly open to a canal, that American investors were interested, but they hadn't gotten enough information yet. 
But one wonders if, especially if the Chinese government is willing to help finance this, and some people feel that it would only be built if the Chinese government is willing to do that. That the private investors are not enough for this project. One wonders if behind the scenes there's not concern because the United States has been through the centuries very interested in being the one that would build a canal if a canal were to be built and keeping other countries from building. And, and that's one of the concerns I think from an economic standpoint America would always have, right? If you if you end up with with China bankrolling this canal and then the world begins to use it as a major trade route and then we end up in some sort of a either real or economic war with China, oh my goodness, all of a sudden one of our major shipping lanes, the only one able to accommodate the new vessels that we build, is now is now shut down. It seems as though that could that could put a chokehold on the American economy pretty quickly if we come to rely on it too much. It could, and that must be under consideration by U.S. policymakers. I'm still dubious that all of the studies will come through positive and that that the canal will be built. There's also the question of in Bloomberg and some of the other economic press recently was a report that uh, Wang Jing being one of the 200 wealthiest people in the world uh, lost 80% of his fortune in the recent stock market crash. Now, of course, that's a paper loss and the company has pointed out that he has solid assets like gold mines in Cambodia and things like that that don't disappear, right? <laughs> it's a paper loss. But still, he's been paying for all of these studies. And the they say investors are lining up, but we don't know who they are yet. Should we be worried about the labor that would be used to build such a canal if indeed it is built? I mean, large uh, multi-billion dollar projects like this in the developing world have over the centuries been plagued by human rights abuses, by Mm -hmm. the use and abuse of workers coming from all around the world Mm -hmm. to put their blood, sweat, and toil into a project like this that may not benefit them too much. Is that a concern of yours? The concern, I think, is if the forecast of the government that it would raise formal employment in the country from the current about 640,000 in the formal sector, meaning they're paying into Social Security and all of those good things, in a country of 6 million up to 1.9 million people. Is is that realistic? I think that if the canal were successfully built, it could very well be true that especially secondary jobs related to building and maintenance and supporting all those workers, because the workers would come some from China, some from other countries of Latin America, and many from Nicaragua. The question is, would it be the profit that Nicaragua would make from the canal under the concession is not that much. It's just a million dollars a year and then 1% control ownership in the canal and 51% after 50 years. So it's it's not it's a, it would be an enclave, a foreign enclave in Nicaragua. How much profit would it produce for Nicaragua is a question. What got you interested in this country in the first place? Ah, my first job out of college, be 50 years ago in January, was to go with the SS Hope hospital ship to Nicaragua. So we docked in Corinto, Nicaragua in January of 1966, greeted with a speech by Anastasio Somoza. (laughs) And I was on the ship for 10 months, medical education ship, even though I I went because I've minored in Spanish. And I met and married a Nicaraguan doctor. And that was how the story began. 
and you've been involved ever since. How, how do you rate the prospects for the country of Nicaragua? Because there, I mean, obviously so many Central and South American countries are struggling and some go into these boom and bust cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many are plagued by political strife. I'm wondering how you see whether or not this canal gets built, the prospects for this country that you spend so much time and clearly love so much. I think they're positive. Right now, Nicaragua has a good level of, of economic growth, just under 5% a year. Poverty continues to go down if, if slowly. And I think with or without the canal, it's positive. But I think that's the search is to find a way to bring the country out of poverty more rapidly. And one has to sympathize with that search. But at the same time, is the damage to the environment uh, worth it? And are the gains from a, a project built by a foreign concession enough for the country? Are there other ways that you feel that the country could do that, that it could lift itself out of poverty? Because so many countries have to rely on their natural resources, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and they have to lean on that. And sometimes it, it is not to their benefit. We see lists of both uh, South American and African countries that are mined extensively, mm-hmm. and the benefit does not accrue to the people who, who live there. I mean, what is the thing that Nicaragua does to lift itself out of poverty, if, if not the canal? Nicaragua survives because of its production of food crops, and whether that's for export or for feeding its own people. And even in the basic foods, Nicaragua produces, for example, more beans than it needs. And Nicaragua's a, Nicaraguans eat a lot of beans, but they produce even more than they eat. So I think a concentration on small agriculture has been a strength, particularly under this new Sandinista administration that came back into office starting in 2007 providing the incentives for small-scale agriculture. But the problem with that is it needs to be more productive. And that's one thing they keep emphasizing, but I'm not sure how easy it is to do or how fast it's happening for small peasant farmers to become more productive on their land. That would be something that could be done if the canal doesn't go through that might be an important alternative for Nicaragua to raise people out of poverty more generally. Catherine Hoyt is national co-coordinator for the Alliance for Global Justice, and uh, she was in Connecticut for a program at Trinity College called the Nicaragua Canal Debate, Development, Environment, Rights. It's part of a Hartford Ocotal Sister City Project. Catherine, it was great to meet you, and thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When we come back, we'll take a look at China's evolving role in the global economy with Iranian businessman Farzam Kamalabadi. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on the show, three stories about China. We've heard about the one-child policy coming to an end and also about a Chinese plan for Nicaragua and a massive canal through that country. Now we're going to turn to a recent conversation with Dr. Farzam Kamalabadi. He's founder and chairman of Future Trends International in China. Last month, he stopped by our studios to talk about his work with the Chinese government to expand business opportunities with the U.S. Dr. Kamalabadi, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Thank you for your invitation. First of all, what brings you to Connecticut? Oh, I am here as part of the Future Trends campaign to bring closer, first, the U.S. and China together in a global community, as well as the corporate America. We have certain messages, and it is both on the business level, on humanitarian level, and also on international relations level. What are those messages? Give me an idea. Okay. The first message is that the whole world is in 
a new phase, and the new phase is where the borders are being lifted up. Mm. The borders both of physical and also mental, as well as information. Therefore, the major shift requires that China and U.S. don't think themselves only as allies or even as partners, but really as only we can call members of one even country, the whole world. So my message is very simple for the U.S. corporate. Think of China market as the extension of U.S. Mm. And for China, I tell them, think of U.S. as the backyard of China. And think of your markets as domestic markets. Don't even think that you're going international because the whole global community is shrunk. You, you talked about a, a variety of different types of borders, some of which are physical borders and others are mental borders. Explain what you mean by a mental border between the two countries. I used to give lectures in the U.S. Uh, about what I called breaking of the invisible Great Wall. Mm. So I say that China not only has the physical Great Wall, which was symbolic of keeping nations out of China, but it has also mental Great Walls. And that means first mindset, uh, systems, mm -hmm. uh, transparencies, the role of law initiative. So the U.S. by involvement could help change and uplift China. And the same way, China by going out and opening its door and to a deeper degree could really participate, what I call the rise of China or the integration of China to the global world community. So there is a massive movement, and that movement has parallel in history, second to none except to the renaissance of Europe and the discovery of the North American continent. And the third macro world process is the emergence of China to the world community. So the, as you said, the mental blocks are fears, habitual shells, and not understanding that the different systems, when they merge together, they produce what I call the empowered third and heightened awareness. So it is for win-win situation. So we are in China training China to open more. So China has moved from WTO to genuinely and internally wanting to open all its borders and policies. And uh, that means, for example, the economic way, there are 2,000 sub-sectors of economy that were closed. They are the negative list of China. They will be reduced in eight years to become only 200. That means 1,800 sub-sectors will open fully to the international community. To whom? To both privatization domestically and also to the corporate West. They are in the banking sector, insurance sector, services center, sector, oil and gas, oil and gas services sector, uh, hospital and health, and more than that, even the media. The media used to be fully governmental, as we call it, like the throat of the Communist Party now is becoming privatized. And like the news corporation and others can be created in China. Private investment and the rise of the private economy is uh, what is taking place in China. And the U.S., by its participation, not only can accelerate the process, itself will benefit. Mm. What I'm saying is that the China's realities are that it is 1.5 billion population. That is five times to eight times of the U.S. as mm. far as the size of the economy. Whereas the U.S. economy has been to a relative degree saturated, China is at early stage of its economic rise. Therefore, that means really 20, 30 times of the U.S. market economy. So a U.S. corporation not only should be in China in a very superficial, partial way, it must stamp copy itself. Mm. It must multiply itself in China, by China, with China, through China, even globally. One thing that many people listening to our, our conversation right now in 2015, though, might say is, is that China's economy, as we speak, 
seems to be in some trouble. The Chinese stock market has been in quite some upheaval. I'm wondering if you look at that and you see some some sort of specific trend that either speaks to what you're talking about or maybe is in opposition to some of the things that you're talking about. I don't see that in opposition because we have to look at the long-term picture. Mm-hmm. So the arrow of the economic growth of China that had been kept into captivity for about 300 years being released is only 30 years. So it is at the early stage of picking momentum. And an arrow, when it goes up, it, wasn't, it will not fall down all of a sudden. It will go for a long-term steady, what we call the long-standing normal development of the economy of China. It has adjustments, so it will be partial adjustments and in a certain regions, uh, but it is not going to be the doomsday the fall down of the China's economic uh, situation as many ill-wishers or those who are not very well aware of the real situation of China may think. China is like the domestic demand market is like the stomach within the stomach within the stomach. It has not been fully utilized. So that means there is a lot of demand. Those who will have their first houses, their first cars, their first mobiles. I mean, as I say, China has 500 large cities, 2,800 small cities, 29,000 townships, and millions of villages. So that market is real. It's there. A lot of what you, you talk about in your work, though, and that's fascinating to me because China does have all these small cities that are outside the huge capitals of Beijing and, and Shanghai. Could you talk about that, about engaging China that is outside of these enormous metropolitan areas that we focus so much on? Actually, 80% of the population of China are still in the farmlands and the small townships. We call them the fourth and the fifth tier cities. And these basic grassroots are actually where the China's economy is active now. China's central government is actually focusing the next phase of its development into these smaller cities. At the same time, basically, China itself is moving from focus on the big cities to these smaller townships and villages at the same time and globalization. So two trends are happening. On the globalization, China is moving into the new phase of opening. That means whatever made the noise about China and its success for the past 30 years is only the elementary and rudimentary and embryonic phase. Mm. The real growth of China and the real opening of China is just starting now. That means for the U.S. corporate, there is a China that is now 10 times of China, as we know. Mm. That means the process that created the wealth in China. And the wealth is both the number of billionaires in China this year surpassed the U.S., there are 460 billionaires in China. Only not the billionaires, but the many millionaires on these smaller cities, that bedrock of 10 million millionaires, and also the general affluence of the country coming up. That whole trend that created the Jack Ma's that people know about Alibaba, this is at the early stage. So China... Well, and we just want to stop you about that because one worry that many people in America have, mm-hmm. especially in the last few decades, is the enormous concentration of wealth at the very, very top of American society, right? So not just the top 1%, but the top 0.01% controls so much of the wealth yes. in America. And when you see a country like China, as you say, growing the number of billionaires and the number of people with enormous wealth, you still have a country in which you have many hundreds of millions of people who are, are still quite poor. I'm wondering if you believe that the growth of China is... Benefiting it, these lower well, levels benefit, Well, benefiting them, but also moving in the same direction as America, in which we have a larger gap between the middle class and the rich. Mm-hmm. Is, is that necessarily good for the future of China? Yeah, it is not happening that way. China's model of economy has been what we call inclusive growth, or what is called the Xiaokang, 
That means the little wealth for the families. Mm. You don't need to have super wealthy. We say the concept of super wealthy as a news for the corporate America to realize that in China they can multiply themselves, not only have 5% presence, but at the same time, the masses of China are not poor. Uh, they are not like in India or in Africa or even in South America and even not in some of the underdeveloped regions such as even in the U.S. So the wealth distribution in China in general is more uh, what I call balanced so far than the counterparts in other countries. You were talking about the systems that are different in China than in the United States. One thing I, I suppose I should ask about that many American politicians worry about with China as, as a partner in trade is that China has, has exhibited different standards in, in say, environmental quality mm. or in their human rights record. And I'm wondering how you feel that is moving forward and whether or not you believe the United States may have a positive or neutral effect on China improving its environmental quality and also its long-term human rights record? No country is perfect. I'm not talking about what I call two-dimensional world. All countries that are operating, competing, and helping each other, they not only have to interchange, but commonly must look for the third dimension that none of them have, have arrived at. That means they have all to progress in physical, in political, in human rights, in upliftment of poverty. So China also is suffering from environment, from the lack of education, lack of knowledge, lack of social welfare. So the picture is not total rosy, but the progress direction is positive. And the genuine effort of especially the higher level government is real. And the people of altruance, the same as in U.S., they are there. However, it is the mid-level government that had been corrupt, and China is fighting against that. It was a slag in the society because of the early era of communism that individual initiative was not allowed, and so China is encouraging that. It was an introvert society for thousand years, and China is opening that forever. So it is a two-directional. China is on the rise outbound. So the new Silk Road policy, which I proposed and now central government has adopted, means at least 50 million to 100 million Chinese will be moving out of China, especially to the Middle East and Africa and Europe in the next 8 to 10, ten years, and many of them will settle even. So there is a major shuffling of the populations in the world. Well, China does, outbound yeah, and yeah. then also the West inbound into China. What, what does that mean for countries in the Middle East? You are from Iran originally. What does it mean for countries like, like Iran or, or Iraq or Afghanistan to have an influx of people moving from China? If they come with their new technologies, new innovation, new capital and the new contributions to the society on a win-win situation, then it will be a new, better order of peace and development globally. If they come with aggressiveness and then the host countries also block, and so we get into habitual shell of fears, mutual fears, it's not beneficial to anyone. Mm. So that's why I am in the, what I call in the back seat, trying to steer the wheel of China's emergence to the world community to become peaceful, positive, mm -hmm. contributory, learning both sides of the border. That's why I'm back to U.S. and encouraging, hey, our friends and brothers of U.S., I learned from you. I'm an Iranian who came to U.S. early in 1978. I learned not only English here, not only Chinese here. I learned a lot of wisdoms from you. 
You are the ones who taught us entrepreneurship, to boldly go where no one has gone before, the pioneering spirit. Okay, move with the pioneering spirit. You annex Texas and New Mexico and California. Now think of China as another extension mm-hmm. rather than we raise walls. We should break down the walls, as I said, that are both physical. So the U.S. did good yes. and China did good to make now the visa become a 10-year automatic visa. So that is the progress. In the future, we will not need visas. So the, the progress of lifting up the policies of the borders, the physical borders, the mindsets and shuffling with each other in not random, not by havoc. For example, the refugee case is by havoc, but the world is being forced into shuffling and reshuffling. Why not we do it intentionally with plan, with purpose and with participation that's economically yeah. beneficial? Yeah, I, I'm interested in what you're, what you're saying about how you want to see as China moves into, say, countries in the Middle East, that they do so in a way that's respectful and is, and is non-confrontational because you know, we just had a, conver- a conversation on our program about, for instance, a plan to build a canal through Nicaragua that is being financed by a Chinese billionaire. We've seen many other projects around the world through Latin America and, and, Brazil, in, and in Africa Brazil. where there is worry amongst locals that China is n- moving into territory, uh, maybe extracting resources, not doing right by the people there. Is that what you worry about, essentially, that as China projects itself around the world into places in South America and Africa, that perhaps they're not always being the partners that they should be? Absolutely. The danger and the problem exists everywhere. It existed with U.S.'s expansion to South America and to the outside, and it had these backlashes. And uh, we hope that China will learn from that and uh, will move with, as I said, win-win spirit with sensitivities to the local cultures, civilizations, to being not only by the rule of law initiative, but by, we call it, faith and fidelity in business contracts and in business practices, the best practices. And it is not automatically the case. We have to educate ourselves and the nations. It is, again, the U.S.'s spirit of not only I progress, but I help other progress. And in the process, we all learn. It is a mutually learning process. So the world is shaped by either accidents, incidents, or by positive will. If we encourage, promote the free will to become, as you are asking the right questions, to become positive, look at the negativities, understand that they exist, but improve them. The whole world is moving from immaturity to maturity. Sometimes I wonder how fast it's moving, but I I take your point. We need to encourage the movement from immaturity to maturity to become conscious. I just have time for one last question for you. And and if you don't mind, it's a a bit of a personal one. You're a member of the Baha'i faith, am I correct? Oh, yes, I am a Baha'i. I try to be. (laughs) (laughs) From what I understand and the little that I, I know and that I've read, this is a faith that has deep roots in your home country, but it indeed has been persecuted for, for quite some time, and members of your own family and your own faith have been pre- persecuted for, for quite some time in Iran. W- would you mind talking about that and the, Im- the impact that that has had on you personally? Oh, yes. The Baha'i faith itself, being a world's youngest and progressive world religion, talks about the oneness of the world of humanity. The earth is one country, and mankind is its citizens. It is talking about the unity of religions, not by arbitrary, but by the fundamental reality that the religion experience is a 
what you call progressive phenomena itself, unity and diversity, that by root causes we are actually the, as a humanity is one, the earth is one country, but itself being very progressive was persecuted for nearly two centuries, 170 years in Iran, even up to today. And yes, even my father, my sister, members of our family, when I was in Iran, we were persecuted. However, the Baha'is themselves never see enemies because we have to stop that chain of uh, continuous. Therefore, the Baha'is, we try to forgive and forget and also in the meanwhile, in a soft manner, educate. Again, there is nothing more important than the dynamic power of example. Mm. If we learn to forget and forgive and help them to understand from a different angle, then we win. Otherwise, what's the point of another religion? Religion is reuniting people. If the religion is the source of unity, then it is valuable. If it becomes a source of disunity, it is like a medicine. It is for headache. If it adds to your headache, take it away. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Dr. Farzam Kamalabadi, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. Listen in this afternoon at 2 o'clock for Science Friday. I'll be sitting in hosting for Ira Flato. You can continue our conversation online, wnpr.org. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.